Story Matters is a podcast about the power of narrative in shaping public conversation, creating culture, and influencing social change for a world in crisis. Each week, we'll bring a different guest who is using narrative in some way to address some of the most persistent challenges of our time, from the pandemic to climate change, from the biodiversity crisis to social challenges, poverty, violence, racism, and inequity. Challenges that threaten our stability and undermine our democracy. Welcome to Story Matters. Dr. Bo Breslin, our next guest, is a professional time traveler. Seriously. He's a Skidmore College government professor, a specialist in constitutional law, a civil liberties scholar, and a communitarian who also happens to be adept at traveling through time. In this episode of Story Matters, Bo takes a seam and I through American history, reimagining, as Thomas Jefferson first envisioned it, how each generation would interpret or reinterpret the Constitution with their own priorities. Bo is the author of A Constitution for the Living, imagining how five generations of Americans would rewrite the nation's fundamental law. It is an exciting and insightful ride through alternate histories from Abe Lincoln to Booker T. Washington on into the present day with conclusions that are incredibly relevant for our contemporary society right here, right now. There are two things that compelled us to invite Bo to do an episode. The first, I'm just fascinated by creative writing projects that are not any one kind of thing. Constitution for the Living is exactly that. It's academically rigorous, but it's also sort of a work of historical fiction. It is a reimagining, but it's grounded in past realities. It's a what if in history but steeped in a sort of complex and nuanced expertise around constitutional law. And believe it or not, the prose is compelling. There are few academic works that are as accessible and well-paced. And as a writer and a storyteller, I wanted to know how Bo walked this line between scholar and historical fiction writer how he got himself into the headspace of some of the nation's founders and most prominent figures. Second, we've been talking to a lot of storytellers on this show who are expanding our definition of stories beyond the individual focus. Jens Larsen, who talked about together telling and described stories as sands on a, on a beach. Jeff Gomez, who actively seeks to disrupt the hero's journey with a concept of collective journey, collective storytelling. And Dr. T, who encourages us to see interconnections and interdependence between members of society. And so I wanted to hear from Bo what this broader vantage point could mean in building a society and constructing a legal system around humanitarian values. Bo also spent some time in his career 
in the restorative justice and transformative justice space. So he was able to shed light on what's possible there when you focus or prioritize the right things. So without further ado, crank up the DeLorean to 1.21 gigawatts, set our sights for 1787, and let's dive into this latest episode of Story Matters. Enjoy. Bo, thank you so much for being on our show. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Excellent. Uh, we're looking forward to, to diving into your work and, uh, and your recent book release. Um, we like to start in these conversations from the very beginning. So if you could share with us, where were you born and raised? Yeah, so I was born in Detroit, Michigan, but I was raised in uh, northern Jersey. Uh, okay. So um, uh, spent my high school years in northern Jersey, went to, uh, went to a private school there. Um, kind of cut my chops right outside the Meadowlands area uh, and went to Hobart College as an undergrad and then uh, went to the University of Pennsylvania. I see I think you're also for a Penn grad. Fellow uh, Penn grad, that's right. Yep. Share that alma mater. My PhD um, and I've uh, been at Skidmore since 1998. So uh, yeah, wow, that's fantastic. Which is about two years after graduating from Penn, and um, that that stood out because '96, uh, uh, the year that you earned your doctorate, was the year I earned my bachelor's degree. So I think we we may have been at the same uh, university wide graduation ceremony where Tom Brokaw spoke. Tom Brokaw, exactly. <laughs> 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 yeah, <laughs> graduation ceremony. <laughs> right, right. Well, and um, what was fascinating, uh, Josh, it was so hot that day that we were all quipping. It was 96 degrees for the class of 96. least. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'll share this now since it's been 25 years, but, uh, I had shorts on underneath my robe. I was not, not wearing a suit. <laughs> Neither was I. I don't think I was wearing shorts a seam, but I was definitely not. <laughs> I love that graduate school bravado. You guys are leading the way. Well, I just, um, uh, I, I wish I had taken more classes in the political science department. Uh, I could have had you as a TA. That's true. I taught all, <laughs> a wide range of courses, probably not all that well, but good enough, I well, guess. There was one professor, uh, and, and I'll get out of uh, get us out of this rabbit hole quickly. But um, who uh, I think it was Professor Harris who taught a constitutional convention course. Yeah. It was an honors class, and I actually met him, and and he was trying to encourage me to take the class, and I just couldn't get it to fit in the schedule. I felt really badly about it. Um, but uh, so I'm not sure you had quite a bit of interaction with him. Uh, Seem I went to Penn to study with Will. Right? Oh, wow. Yeah, so, oh, my God. Uh, I mean, my story is this. Uh, it's uh, very briefly. So I graduated from Hobart and, you know, small liberal arts college, upstate New York. Sure, wanted sure. to go, didn't want to be a lawyer, right? I studied constitutional mm -hmm. law uh, as an undergrad. Didn't want to be a lawyer. Wanted to teach, right? I can't imagine a better job than to uh, write speak and read about things you're passionate about. Right. So I decided I wanted to be a faculty member. So I went to BU as uh, for my first two years, Boston university, because my okay. wife, um, we lived in Boston. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, I'll try it. So after two years of studying graduate work at BU, 
uh, a really prominent dude, uh, a guy named Mark Silverstein, who's in the political science department, says to me, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to teach at a small liberal arts college. And he said, if you want to teach at a small liberal arts college, you can't get your graduate degree from BU. You have to go somewhere else. Wow. And so I looked around and Penn was the only school that offered a what, what's called a constitutional theory concentration. So rather than studying Supreme Court rulings, which I had gotten as an undergrad and I had gotten at um, BU, I went to Penn to study what it means to write constitutions. And Will wow. Harris was the guy. Wow, that is just uh, that sent some goosebumps. Uh, yeah. much, but, um, you could have been grading my essays, my my, my papers. Um, it was not uh, a generous grader, so hopefully not. Right? Uh, 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 my my GPA thanks you that uh, I dodged that bullet. Maybe right. um, you know. Uh, thank you for for sharing that, Bo. Um, appreciate um, you know the interest that you developed in wanting to teach and. And not wanting to go into uh, practice of law, um, but just out of curiosity, did that? Where did that interest in the Constitution, in law, begin? Was it something from middle school, high school? Were you a debater? Were you in student government? You know, so so none of the above, right? So mm. um, I'm going to tell. Uh, so I'll tell two quick uh, anecdotes. One is uh, a little bit more credible. Um, so I took a, an undergraduate course in constitutional law with a guy named Joe DeGangi, and I fell in love with the, with the, the Josh, to, with the stories that Supreme Court yeah. justices yeah, tell, sure. right? So it's a particular language that they tell. It's they're sure, they're resolving conflicts between two two parties, but they go into such, you know, nuanced, philosophical, theoretical narrative storytelling about how to resolve that. That was way more interesting for me than traditional political science, which is bombs and bullets and power. I just thought that was really a great way of resolving conflict. And then the second thing was, shamefully, this is less credible. I love the book, right? You know, it's this book. I'm like, wow, I'm going to be a legitimate, uh, you know, scholar if I walk around campus with a book. It'll build your biceps, no question. It's huge for our listeners. It's huge. On the one hand, it was a totally legitimate and rational reason for loving constitutional law. On the other, it was an uh, it was an incredible. I just liked the book, so yeah, that's how I ended up. And then I just wanted to go on to graduate school from there. Yeah, so really, college is where the uh, inspiration yeah. struck. I mean, feeling in alignment, given our alma mater, as I was thinking about how when I was in eighth grade, I gave myself a challenge of reading the Federalist Papers. Um, <laughs> Once I shout. got into it, I was like, why, why, why did I do why this? Did you do this? And, uh, I, did, I did write a paper on it, but I actually, I found it absolutely fascinating. And yeah. just the back and forth. I mean, this is Hamilton J. Um, Madison, I believe. Um, and um, just advocating and, uh, and, and, you know, the stories that were a part of that. I think that was really what brought it to life um, uh, for me. Yeah, and we talked about the, the greatest contribution by Americans to the history of political thought is uh, the Federalist Papers. So, yeah. you know, you go um, from Aristotle, Plato, all the way through Montesquieu, you know, Tocqueville, Rousseau, yeah. the reality, Rousseau, the reality at Locke, 
the reality is Madison uh, and Hamilton in particular, right? John Jay kind of drops out. That's the greatest contribution to political thought from an American or yeah. a, a yeah. federal state. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, John Jay became the first Supreme Court Chief Justice, I believe. Right? Yeah. So he wasn't he wasn't a complete slouch, but he did drop out. <laughs> <laughs> he, he wasn't carrying his weight, but uh, <laughs> he still contributed to the birth and founding of our of our nation. Um Bo, you've been such a prolific writer, not just this book that you recently published, but a a number of papers that um, it's just it's so impressive across your career. Um, What was interesting, two things, two themes I noted was um, a lot of discussion about constitutional interpretation based on race. And I I just wondered, are there some personal experiences that um, kind of highlighted that for you or made that feel particularly potent and worthy of discussion? Yeah, so so um, you guys will appreciate this. At the end of the day, I consider myself um, the most privileged guy, right? So back in the day, we folks used to do the privilege walk, right, where you essentially um, take a step forward for every uh, identity that you're privileged. And I was so far in front of everybody else. I mean, I'm white, heterosexual. Uh, able-bodied, male, upper middle class. I was so far in front that I had to come to grips with my own privilege in a way that um, has shaped sort of my adult life. And it really came, a scene that really came into uh, play when I left being a faculty member and became the dean of the faculty at Skidmore. So I was dean of the faculty, the, the basically the second chief academic officer from 2011 to 2018. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, because of your, because of one's leadership, you have to put aside your privilege, check it at the door and uh, recognize as best you can how to uh, support and help uh, folks with uh, around you. And so diversity, inclu- uh, equity and inclusion work, uh, along with access became sort of my, my passion, uh, over the course of that time. And so it just kind of bled into my scholarship. No, that's fantastic. Um, Bo, you mentioned, um, being enamored at a young age with the leaning on narrative that Supreme court justices did in rendering their opinions or making their decisions. Um, were there any that really stood out to you that you thought, wow, you were just sort of really gripped by it. Yeah, so they're going to be, you're not going to be surprised. They're the, they're the famous ones, right? Brown versus Board of Education. I was is, just thinking that one. Yeah. Is, uh, you know, sure, some people will say Marbury versus Madison is probably the most impactful case. But Brown versus Board of Education is certainly the most important case the court has ever decided. And, um, you know, it changed the fundamental nature of the way in which the court works. Everything from you know, uh, the court uses psychological studies to tell the story of uh, how uh, segregation is inherently unequal, right? And how the stigma associated with uh, being an African-American child um, was so influential in the way in which the court went about its business. And everything from that to it's changed the way we select justices, right? Because 
the NAACP, the story of the NAACP using the court to advance its interests outside of the traditional democratic institutions, right? They were going to get no movement whatsoever from the state legislatures or Congress. So let's use the courts to advance our interests. That changed the way courts go about business, right? Because at the end of the day now, it matters who you get on the court and the decision is political as opposed to intellectual. So, you know, Elena Kagan, super smart, Brett Kavanaugh, less smart, right? And I'm not, I'm not saying just ideologically, Stephen Breyer, not as, not as intellectually capable as, you know, William Rehnquist was right. or Sandra, Sandra Day O'Connor. So it's right and left. But the reality is you need to get the right people on the court to be able to advance interest group politics. And for me, that was fascinating. You know, what Thurgood Marshall did there uh, in Brown versus Board of Education fundamentally changed 20th century America. And Roe versus Wade wasn't a terrible uh, case. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting in the timeliness of it. Um, I, I just read a news report this morning that uh, Democrats are proposing a bill to expand the bench by four justices. Um, we shall see. We shall see where that goes. And that, that brings an interesting concept up around uh, timeliness and and sort of. Um, uh, anachronisms, even uh, in that sense, because I noticed another theme of your writing is around this con- these concepts of uh, amending a sacred document. Yeah. And I, I wonder, would you feel like has it shifted over time? Because like, we had the prohibition amendment and then, uh, oops, that wasn't such a great idea. So let's change that. Uh, but then others, the other amendments around voting and, and women's suffrage, like just sort of um, that are really core and fundamental to our country as a democracy. But then, you know, you look at something like the Second Amendment, which um, feels like maybe there are some components of it that are a bit anachronistic. Um, so just in your opinion, has it shifted over time? And, and how, where are we today with respect to that? Yeah. So, uh, so I like to answer, uh, I hope you guys don't mind. I like to answer questions, um, with a little storytelling, right? So come to the right place. So I write this in, in the preface of the book, but it really was a meaningful moment for me. Right. So there's this, there's national constitution center in Philadelphia, right? Our, our one museum devoted to constitutions, and it's a, you know, in some ways it's an exciting museum. In some ways it's a, um, it's a very traditional museum, but you come to the end of that museum. It's a self-guided tour, obviously. And you come to this room that is a fascinating room. It's called Signers Hall, right? And in Signers Hall, if anybody listening hasn't been to Signers Hall, um, it's a room that's exactly the size of Independence Hall where the Constitution and Declaration have been, uh, were, were written, it's recreated in some sense, and there are the 39 uh, signers of the Constitution in that room in full bronze, you know, full life, uh, full size, I should say. And you're, so you're basically surrounded by the framers, right? But the, that's not the important part of that, particular, uh, of that particular moment. The important part of that moment is you have a choice of whether or not to sign the Constitution or not, right? And Asim, getting back to your question, that choice is a real choice. Are we in 2021 
going to ratify this constitution as it is with its 27 amendments. And if people take that moment seriously, right, it's a pretty important moment. Do we think this constitution today still works? Um, Do we think everything from Article 1, Article 2, Article 3 to the Second Amendment still works? And people ought to take that moment seriously. And so when I'm in that, when I was in that moment, I contemplated whether I really believe this constitution still works. And the answer, I think, Asim, over time has come to me to be no. I don't think the constitution works anymore. I think there's some gems, right? The 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment can't do anything better than that. But I think the constitution is fundamentally flawed. So I would not sign that constitution right now. I'd uh, exit through the gift shop and uh, leave leave the pen on the table. But it is an important moment, and it's an important moment for Americans generally. Well, that was a superb story. Thank you so much for sharing that. It framed it uh, just wonderfully well. Um, Josh, I'm going to hand the baton to you. Yeah, yeah, right on. Well, and yeah, I, I would agree with uh, Seema. That was that was um, very poignant and, and well-crafted story. I want to rewind a little bit in something that's very close to my heart. Um, in the early aughts, you had written um, a series of papers on restorative justice. Yeah. Um, and some of the restorative justice work. And I think, you know, it's, it's very funny. We, we, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mine was so like obscure shit, right? That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got to give a shout out to uh, Jocelyn, who is our... Yeah, uh, she's um, been superb. Our, our producer, and she's fantastic. She goes uh-huh. deep. Um, but yeah, so... Uh, you know, and, and I actually worked on several restorative justice projects here in Chicago and then nationwide. But one of the things that I thought was unique about your approach and about what you're writing on was sort of this community first. Um, and, and so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about that. And I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm speculating here, um, but I think that some of the foundational stuff in that community first, those theories seem to inform how you approach the Constitution and, and how you discuss that. So I don't want to get ahead of myself and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I will I will pass the mic willingly. And I would love to hear you kind of, you know, speak a little bit uh, on, on that and, and just the overall philosophy uh, of those yeah, justice so- models. So, Josh, thank you for bringing that up. I'm a huge uh, fan of alternative ways to resolve conflict, right? Restorative justice is one of those alternative ways. I happen to be a fan, big fan of restorative justice. But a, a friend of mine once told me that our current criminal justice system basically has, um, you know, essentially two choices, right? Uh, you have sort of two paths, And the paths, the metaphor for the paths can be equated to kind of a bicycle and a tank. And there's a lot in between a bicycle and a tank in terms of ways to resolve uh, conflict. Restorative justice, I think, fits some of that holes and makes there more choices. And I, you know, I honestly believe harm to a community. Josh, you know this better than anybody uh, in terms of the work that you do in mental health and so on. But harms to a community are much more significant than uh, an individual facing a criminal, uh, you know, a criminal penalty, right? Yeah. So the possibility of repairing that harm, putting the community first, figuring out ways in which 
you go beyond not just simple apologies, but making up for past wrongs mm. is uh, absolutely a way that our criminal justice system should evolve over time. And the shame of it, Josh, as you know, the shame of it is restorative justice has not taken off in the way that it should have. And communities yeah. continue to be harmed, whether it's Minnesota right now or small school communities like I've written about. That's right. That's right. Yeah. If you were to update some of that thinking, you know, that you put forward in some of those early papers for now to respond to things like George Floyd, which you just alluded to, and some, right. of, the, some of the things that, you know, ACLU um, did a, a, a massive campaign around uh you know, school to prison pipeline a couple yeah. of years ago, where yeah. it was, you know, the, the kind of increased security in schools and the increased, you know, like, you know, punitive kind of um, approach within the classroom where it was like, you know, something that would normally probably get, you know, any of the three of us, I mean, you know, you know, uh, 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 a detention or an after school, you know, something, you know, is now landing kids in juvie and, and so on. So I, I'm wondering if how how sort of current events have evolved some of your thinking. And I, I understand, you know, that um, all the caveats about literature, the literature, and it's obviously moved and, and you focused on other things in your career. But I'm just curious. Um, yeah. You know, you're thinking. Yeah. So, uh, as you know so well, right, restorative justice is um, largely seen as incapable of dealing with our most serious issues, right? Mm-hmm. Highest level crime, most uh, egregious violations, right? So you see, you see the uh, a reluctance, for example, like uh, you know, my great passion early on in my career was the death penalty. And marrying, right, the death penalty, uh, my students worked on death penalty cases, we got, kid, we got individuals off the death penalty, but marrying restorative, uh, restorative justice with the death penalty was not easy, right. because right. ultimately it was seen as kind of, restorative justice was seen as kind of a softer way of going about, um, you know, the criminal justice system generally. Right. But... If restorative justice, as a general rule, is about repairing harm to the community, and a community can be a family, it can be a couple, it can be a school, it can be a town, there are tools, even now, in in the most serious crimes like uh, police violence on African-American men where restorative justice can have a very significant place. It may not be able to answer everything, Josh, but at the end of the day, it can have a significant place in um, helping heal a community. And it might be only a small part of it, but uh, my sense is that uh, it's not being used effectively to to deal with things like the George Floyd Minneapolis or all the other issues related to, for example, police violence on African-American young men. Right. The other thing that I wanted to kind of go into, and I think this tees up a little bit of what's in your, your book, but, uh, you know, again, the community first, there's a big conversation right now. Um, and, and it does um, impact some of the, the way that we talk about you know, narrative or the way that we use narrative. But there's a big push right now in a conversation on kind of participatory, um, uh, a more community based um, decision making and participatory democracy um, in terms of justice, in terms of law, in terms of those things. And, you know, it, 
it's it's taking that into account. And I'm wondering if you could speak to, you know, sort of this this shift in how, how do we start thinking more communally rather than just driving decision making for individual liberty? The American political experiment has been a, a political experiment mm. that is based on the principle of Right. figuring out how to give the individual as much rights as possible without absolutely ruining the collective. Um, and, you know, I'm all, I, I go back to John Stuart Mill, right? John Stuart Mill spoke about the harm principle. Rights are great. Individual rights are fantastic right. up to the point in which they're going to harm uh, either other individuals or the collective. So, you know, let's not forget the fact that um, the collective is a real entity out there. So how does that play out, right? It plays out in ways like, for me, you can say, one can say as much as one wants, oh, you know, I have an individual right not to wear a mask, but that's ridiculous, right? Because right? at the end of the day, that does encroach on uh, the harm of the community. And in that situation, the community's got to win that, that battle because real lives are at stake. The other thing I would say based on um, is, is based on what you asked is the there's too much reliance in America on uh, the federal government to, to solve all of our problems. Right. So I'm not suggesting that you shift all of the benefit to the local town communities, uh, this sort of notion of popular democracy at the local level. But you got to do a little bit more than is currently the case. How many of us really know who our state legislator is, right? Very few of us know who our state legislator is. A lot of us know who our Congress member is, and certainly almost all of us know who our senator is. But the real sausage making happens at the local level. And so let's recommit to whether it's, you know, whether it's local Chicago politics or, um, you know, or L.A. Asim or Saratoga Springs or whatever. Mm -hmm. Let's recommit to uh, to making some real changes uh, at the local level, uh, thereby uh, giving individuals like me and you a much more of a closer stake in the outcome uh, of politics, because power is important and we rely too much on the federal government to make decisions. And that's basically where where uh, sort of where the book uh you know, engages in that conversation, especially the 2020 Constitutional Convention. How, how do we how do we try to start implementing it? Does it begin with education of like figuring out who who your local decision makers are? Does it begin with? Yeah. So. Um, so so um, this is where it, there, there are lots of different ways. Right. And certainly I don't have the panacea. I don't have the magic wand to be able to figure them out. But let me give you a couple of examples. Right. So. Um, if we want to have more uh, agency at the local level and we want to we want to reduce the the, the uh, power dynamic at the federal level, structurally, we need to make some changes. And let, so let's talk about the changes we need to make structurally. One term limits for Congress members, not a hard you know, 85 out of 100 Americans believe in term limits for Congress members. If you didn't have it become the professionalization of Congress and instead you had people who are really civic minded go there for, let's say, you know, House of Representatives, you have uh, five terms. So 10 years and senators, two. 
So you have 12 years in that situation. And then they return back to their community. You actually have, have um, you know, experience and leadership coming back to the community in a way that's helpful. Instead, 90 plus percent of all Congress members at the House and the Senate are, can, can expect to be re, uh, to, uh, reelected, right? The incumbency rate is huge. I would reduce the power also of the Senate. It's the most undemocratic institution in the history of humankind. There is, it is absurd that, uh, the, that the Senate, that the senators, there are equal number of senators coming out of California that there are coming out of Wyoming. And the Senate holds a lot of power. So a lot of the things that seem that, you know, the stuff that we're talking about, there's literally no chance that these Democratic uh, Congress members are going to increase the judiciary, the Supreme Court, by 9 to 12, because the, the Senate's never going to allow it, right? So, so what you have to do is you have to bring that down. You have to change the nature of the presidency. What about a one-term presidency that's six or eight years so the person isn't sitting there trying to figure out how to start a campaign two years into it? Um, I do think structurally, I would change the Supreme Court too, right? Structurally, I think uh, term limits, 18 years for a Supreme Court justice is plenty. I think you change to an even number by the sacred number nine. Well, the sacred, the number is sacred because of the fact that it's been around for 150 years, but there's no logic to nine. And if you went with eight or 10, what you would get is the, is the diminishing the number of cases that are decided 5-4, those controversial, controversial cases. If you had eight, a good majority would be 5-3-6-2-7-1. That would be better. So have an even number of justices. But what that structural change, Josh, would do is shift power to the local communities and you'd be able to have, because the federal government wouldn't be making all these decisions, you'd be able to have um, local communities have more agency. And I'll finish this way by saying, then there are all the environmental factors. We got to do better in schools. We, uh, K through 12, we have to do better with public health. We have to do better with um, uh, our uh, systems of government. We have to do better with our transportation systems, infrastructure, and so on. If you focused on the local communities um, and did better in that, especially in the school systems, you'd be, uh, we'd be better off in terms of community first. Mm, so well said. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it certainly would have been nice to have um, let go of Mitch McConnell a few cycles ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be ideological, but you know, at the end of the day, I can't help myself from time to time. That seems absolutely right. <laughs> Most hated man, even in the Trump administration, most hated man, <laughs> but he's yeah. a very powerful dude for sure. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that was, that was, that was actionable and done some, so thank you. That was awesome. Sorry, um, yeah. a long, no, 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 no apologies. That was fantastic. That's, brilliantly that's, prescriptive. Yeah, exactly. That's what we asked of you. So yeah. that's awesome. I, I want to switch gears and, and talk a little bit um, specifically about the book. Mm-hmm. And um, and the the book the, the most your most recent book is uh, a Constitution for the Living, um, imagining how five generations of Americans would rewrite the nation's fundamental law. 
And I want to know sort of, you know, it, it's funny because when I when I first heard of it, I'm like, is this speculative fiction? Like, what are we talking about here? You know, <laughs> you're right. But, but it is, yeah. It well, is. And so that's that's what I would love, where I would love to start this piece of the conversation is, you know, why you chose that as as your approach to writing it, which which by the way, I think is brilliant. Right. Um, I, I think it's fantastic. And nice. you, you do a great job of sinking into the psyche of each of the generations, um, which is part of part of what really is a strength of, of the book, I would say. Um, so I, I wonder sort of why 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 approach it that way? Yeah, so uh, uh, I can't imagine a uh, a more fun question than this one. So uh, I appreciate it. Thanks, Josh, for asking it. So, you know, the fact of the matter is, as an academic, I'm used to uh, writing what I would describe as sort of stodgy stuff, right? Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm kind of pr- I'm proud of the work that I've done in the past, but it's, you know, it's a particular lingo. It's a particular... Uh, you know, it's a particular audience and so on. So um, two things. One, I talked about earlier on, right? I'm sitting in Signers Hall figuring out whether or not to sign the Constitution. And I thought, ah, you know, let me, let, me, let me contemplate that. And then there's this other moment in my life where, um, you know, I, I happen to be watching uh, what was a great, I think it's called a, a docu series um sure, this is sure. the john adams hbo oh, yeah. thing of the early uh Paul giamatti. Right. Paul giamatti does a great job i think it was produced by tom hanks um it's really a wonderful sort of uh it's a wonderful piece hbo has it anyway i'm sitting there watching this and you know as a as a student of the american founding like this is right up my alley this is good stuff yeah 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 um and i think giamatti's great but there's this scene in when uh, John Adams, Abraham, I mean, uh, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson are sitting in this Paris uh, garden, this Parisian garden. Mm. And they have this uh, they have this 90 second exchange where uh, where uh, Jefferson mentions the fact that there's going to be this constitutional convention thing in Philadelphia and Benjamin, the, he and uh, the three of them really joke about it. But ultimately, um, Jefferson says in that moment, I think the Constitution that they come up with is going to be uh, basically flawed. Right. Mm-hmm. This is pri- uh, this is 1786. So it's prior to them actually going to Philadelphia. And he says, I think it's going to be flawed because all constitutions ought to be written by the generations that that. Um, you know, that are currently in place. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool, right? So there's this famous, Josh, as you know, there's uh, and a scene, there's this famous debate between Madison and Jefferson about enduring constitutions. We know Madison won the debate 234 years later, we still have the same constitution. <laughs> what if Jefferson had won that debate? How cool would it have been to sort of rewrite the narrative American history in a Jeffersonian world where every generation were writing a new constitution. And I thought, wow, that's a pretty simple idea. It shouldn't be written in an academic way. It should be storytelling. Right, right. right? I'll do my best, 
to do storytelling because that's not the way I normally write. But ultimately, let's get historical figures to sit in Philadelphia at various times in American history and figure out what they would have thought uh, about a new constitution. And so that's what I have. I have an 1825, 1863, 1903, 1953, and 2022 constitution. And I use real historical figures um, to, to, to tell those stories. And I thought, wow, that's just a really cool way, not a stodgy academic way, but a, um, a way that sort of taps into my love of narrative, like the two of yeah. you do. And uh, hopefully I pulled it off in some modest way. I don't know if it's credible, but uh, it was certainly was fun. What a great premise. It, it is a fantastic premise. And I would say also, Bo, like the, the execution is totally on point. <laughs> but I'm wondering if you could kind of tee up for our audience and, and speak a bit about, um, you know, where you land in, in the kind of modern, you know, 2020 section. Um, and, and, you know, uh, like what, what you think? Right. I'll, I'll tell you where I, where I land, but I'll also tell you, um, tell you guys a a story, a frustration, right. That goes to the heart of, of this project and the narrative you know, and the challenges of this narrative. But I, Josh, I will absolutely get to your question about, you know, 2022 and so on. But um, here, was, here was one of the hurdles I faced in doing the 2022 convention chapter, right? So in 1825, uh, 1863, 1903, 1953, I could use real people, right? Real <laughs> historical figures. Right. So, you know, first time, uh, first time people of color are invited to a constitutional convention is 1903. It wouldn't have been 1863. It wouldn't certainly mm. wouldn't have been 1825. Would have been 1903. Booker T. Washington would have been a perfect person mm. because of the fact that he was seen as not radical. You know, he's no, he's no Frederick Douglass. Uh, right. So Booker T. Washington would have been a perfect person. Alabama you know, this is the storytelling. Alabama would have been like, oh, see how progressive we are. We're sending Booker <laughs> T. Washington as one of our delegates. Right, right. So I could use historical figures. But in 2022, I can't use historical. I can't use it. I have to find real people yeah, to, to yeah, do this, yeah. right? So uh, one of the great parts of, of that was actually tracking down people I thought would be interesting. So, you know, and basically cold calling them and asking them to be a delegate at the convention. So one of the things, and I'll get to this, I'll get to the the technology thing in a second, but there's no question guys that, um, that a constitutional convention, if it was held today, there would be a serious discussion and ultimately the inclusion of some broad right to environmental protection. Right. Mm. So, there's no question. Most state constitutions have, you know, environmental rights built into sure. their constitution. So I'm like, okay, we got to have that. But who's going to lead that charge? So I pick up the phone and talk to and, and cold call a guy named Mike Bruni, who's CEO and and president of the Sierra Club, right? The country's uh, right. the, the the world's greatest and largest environmental conservation organization, and he's like. Sure, I'll participate, right? Right. So yeah. he and I, he crafts language that I can put in there. And so 
what you see in there, Josh, and the environmental part is Mike Rooney's, if he was Amazing. literally a uh, delegate to the Constitutional Convention. So that was the good side. Yeah. I, and I yeah. hate to, uh, uh, the bad side was this, right? So um, the bad side was trying to find people who I needed to do particular things that would not give me the time of day. Mike okay. Rooney, great. Yeah. Uh, other folks who I won't mention, less great. Sure, sure. As far as the 2022 constitution, if we sat down today, the three of us, and crafted a constitution, it would be dramatically different, right? It mm. would also, uh, so it would take into consideration all of the technological changes, you know, in our, uh, in our lifetime. People hundreds right. of years from now will look back at our lifetime and think that I would assume that technology, the computer, and so on are the innovations that will uh, mark our generation. So right. a constitution has to, uh, has to grapple with that. And our current constitution obviously does not. Right. So, right. um, there would be increased protections of privacy. I think, uh, when it comes to, um, uh, all, all types of privacy, not just, uh, the privacy that we're kind of used to in a constitutional setting, the rovers mm -hmm. way type privacy, but also privacy with identity, privacy with the way in which we, uh, we, uh, we focus on technological social media outlets and so on. Constitution right. would include stuff like that. The constitution would include many other things that relate to our current climate that framers in 1787 just didn't anticipate. So I think the constitution would be much longer, right? It would right. not sure. be 4,400 words, which is basically the same size as a feature article in People magazine. It'd be a <laughs> hell of a lot longer. It'd be a lot like, and I'll finish here, Josh, it'd be a lot like the South Africa Constitution. Positive mm. rights, right to, you know, economic bill of rights, right to health care, right to a right. job. These things would be embedded in a 2022 Constitution. Fantastic. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, I I do I I feel like uh, you know you you did an excellent job on 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 that, but I I am wondering how you made some of the decisions that you made in each of the sections because <laughs> you 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 yeah, it yeah. And, and 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 I, I you know to be honest, Bo, I wouldn't have even thought like oh you know you you can't get yeah, yeah, yeah. Washington on the phone you know so like <laughs> how how did you I mean with a, like I'm I'm thinking in terms of just the the research must have been a beast, let alone the writing. Yeah. So, so, so I'll start this way. I mean, that's exactly the right question, Josh. And, uh, you know, we all have in some sense, this, uh, imposter complex, right? So I'm not a historian, I'm a constitutional theorist, sure, sure. but I know enough about, uh, those times, right. And they're not random, right. 1825, 1863, right. 1903, 1953, 2022 represent, um, the, uh, average lifespan of Americans at the time. So in a Jeffersonian world, Jefferson said we should have a constitutional convention every 19 years. That was a bit indulgent for me to do it every 19 <laughs> years. Would be a boring and yeah, just yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. So I decided to do it based on life expectancy at the time. So okay. in 1987, the life expectancy was 38 years. That puts me at 1825. Again, 38 mm. years, 1863. Right. But we get if we were fortunate enough to have a hundred people in our uh, in our little conversation here, 
we'd have a hundred different books because people will make different choices. What did I, what was I influenced by? I was influenced by the political, uh, the political moments, right? The political winds of the time. And I'll give you an Mm -hmm. example of that. I was influenced by uh, state constitutions that were popping up regularly. Now, yes, it's not the same to say a state constitution was dealing with X, Y, and Z, and the federal constitution would have dealt with that the same way. You have to kind of nationalize. But you read enough of these 155 state constitutions, you get a sense of what they were talking about. Um, So I was influenced by that. I was influenced by court decisions. But mostly it's the time, right? So everything from, from the serious stuff, 1825, take as an example, Josh. 1825, the country is grappling with, of all things, John Quincy Adams' election to as president, that Congress, right? Because John Quincy Adams did not get an electoral college majority. It gets thrown into Congress, and uh, Congress in 1824 has to decide the president. And after a number of ballots, this is the second time it happened, it happens with Jefferson too, but after a number of ballots, John Quincy Adams wins, despite being the loser in electoral college votes and the loser in the popular election to Andrew Jackson. The point being, absolutely, if if there's a constitutional convention in 1825, they're going to take a look at the electoral college because it's failed twice in the first 10 elections. That's the decisions that I made um, that were based on largely what was happening at the time Obviously, 1863, I'll tell you this great story. I I know we're running out of time, but I'll tell you this great story. So um, it's a a small story, but um, so I'm uh, I'm, I'm sitting there writing the story of the 1863 uh, convention, right? Smack dab in the middle of the Civil War. Like, you know, it just happened to be that 38 years life expectancy after 1825 is 1863. So I'm like, holy shit, this is trouble. Fantastic. Right. Cause it's the civil war. Anyway, all of my, as you guys know, all of my conventions take place in Philadelphia as a nod to the original 1787. But Robert E. Lee's forces are not that far away in 1863. In fact, July 1st, 1863, he's going to march into Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. So I'm like, oh, holy cow, where are we going to have the Constitutional Convention? Because they're not going to hold it in Philadelphia, being that close to to Lee's forces. So I write to this uh, famous Civil War historian, Alan Guelzo, who's now at Princeton, very famous. And I'm like, if this is the scenario, where would they hold it? Would they hold it in the convention in New York or would they hold it in Boston? And he says, Columbus, Ohio. I'm like, what? I see it. Probably would have given a, a nod to those states west of the Appalachian. Exactly. Right. Don't forget, Ohio is the third most populous state at the time. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, uh, he and I both agreed that th- that we go Boston as opposed to Columbus, Ohio. But I was like, oh, that's a fascinating decision. Just simply deciding where you're going to move the convention yeah. Uh, yeah. in this narrative uh, story. So small little story, but interesting. I love it. Enough I love it. <laughs> well, 
I mean, it makes complete sense. I mean, if you look at the history of where capitals have been selected, they tend to be in the center. And oftentimes it's the center of where the, um, the, the population density is. So yeah. by, by 1863, it would make sense that that had shifted. Right. And in some ways you could argue if we're going to do it today, it should be like Oklahoma city or, or something like this. <laughs> See, Esteem, I should have, I should have contacted you. Yeah. <laughs> you put me straight. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just a fascinating. So, so my only point is how much fun I had with the small decisions. Absolutely. To the big decisions, what do you do with the electoral college or judicial selection or Congress or so on? Or slavery, right? Of course, slavery was the big course, one in 1863. Yeah. Well, last, last, last writerly question. And I, I could seriously, like, I, I, we could have this conversation all day. I'm, I'm loving this. This is awesome. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad that, that, you know, that you're here and, and that we're doing this. I, I could see this whole thing being a, another HBO miniseries. I, mean, I don't know if you've sold the film rights yet. It might be the first uh, book of that style to actually sell film rights. I'm not sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. I'm here in Los Angeles. I just want to plant that seed. Yeah. <laughs> I think more likely happen. And thank you both for uh, for having me on the show because this could this is going to be my the the most media attention I ever get. I think most of what will likely happen is it'll fade into oblivion. But an HBO miniseries wouldn't be a terrible thing. <laughs> I do, do want to uh, again. This is like the writer geek in me, but I'm wondering what you were reading. So I'm wondering what what you were going to as a source. Were you reading historical fiction at the time? Were you reading? Um, I wasn't. I wasn't. Uh, I, there was an interview you did. Uh, Josh, fairly recently, in which you cited uh, Kurt Vonnegut, Slaughterhouse, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the fact that he rewrote it 50 times, right? Or That's he, right. He, That's there are right. 50 different sort of versions, whether it's in his head or not. And then you, you mentioned Frederick Douglass there, too. Um, so what I was reading at the time uh, was, um, you know, things like Frederick Douglass and so on. But okay. uh, that spoke to me when you said that, because no matter what I was, uh, what, what, what narrative influences I had that fundamentally changed directions in a way that, you know, for a particular chapter. So I might read Frederick Douglass or I might read Booker T. Washington. Or I might read, uh, you know, stuff in the mid 20th century. And it would fundamentally, it wouldn't, it wouldn't reverse directions, but it fundamentally changed the direction of the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Influence that. Yeah. yeah that's fantastic. I, I just had to ask that question because I was wondering if, if you did something for each time period or, or, or you just kind of went completely out of your field, but that's, that's a fantastic answer too. And I love the fact that you were, Oh, go ahead. Go I, ahead. I kept it, uh, I kept it in, in roughly familiar territory but um, meaning they were they were things that I was genuinely interested in. But the way I would the way I would write it is um, and I'm very systematic this way. I'm like a page a day kind of guy. Right. So okay. I'm page a day. But also I would never think about starting, say, the 1953 chapter until I was done with the 1903 chapter. So I'm okay. very methodical and linear. That yeah. Way. Yeah. Ultimately. Those later chapters are responding to the constitutions I craft in the earlier chapters, so I had to make Which sure is, that there was. Consent. Oh, I love that! I love that. See, again, the ADD thing. I would try to write all five of them at the same time, yeah. <laughs> and then I would create a big mess. 
<laughs> but no, Bo, this has been fantastic. Um, we're, we're can't we're thank you enough. You came on, absolutely, absolutely. And this has uh, been wonderful. I, I really, I hope, I hope a lot of folks do read this book, and that it, it, I, I, I hope your uh, your premonition is is wrong that it, 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 exactly. it does stay alive, and that it actually has some real world impact. Because I think you're a, a great thinker, um, and this has been a really exciting conversation. So thank you. Yeah, well, thank really you, both. And might I say, you know, uh, in these sort of situations, there's a lot of time spent talking about my stuff, but. The work that you both have done and the writings that you both have done um, are uh, super impressive. Keep up uh, the enormous great work that you're doing both on the ground um, and in your heads. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think if, if I get any other interviews with anybody else, I don't think it'll be either as fun or uh, as enjoyable <laughs> as this one. And I'm just really, uh, I'll finish by saying, I'm just really honored to be in your presence. You both are super serious people, and it's great to be there. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Josh Grenowitz. I'm your host, along with Asim Geary. Story Matters would like to thank Achieve, Asim's regular podcast, for providing the platform to Story Matters Season 2. We'd also like to thank Jocelyn Salmaron, our extraordinary producer, for all of her research and reporting chops, without which none of these episodes would be possible. Solomon Collins for his editing expertise and Kitty Overton, our advising producer and the impetus behind the original concept for Story Matters. We'd also like to thank Yasha Hoffman for generously providing our intro-outro music from his song Roots off of the album The Weather, which you can hear in its entirety on our website, along with show notes for every episode at storymatters.site. 